episode four. This is a very different administration than the United States has had in the past. We will defend our common security, our shared prosperity, and our sacred liberty. This is one of the most professional speeches he's given in a while. As a, as a veteran, we looked for in our leaders was a very a clear direction on where you wanted to go. And actually, he sounded like a world leader. North Korea is safer. That regime is more secure with nuclear weapons. Why can't a ruling party in Congress come up with something that people can agree on? You can do a soapbox on how that piece of shit bill was, <laughs> was pushed through here. <laughs> what will it take for a, the Democrats to really start turning against the Clinton machine. This is the unimaginable. The, I would say the Clinton machine is, is tremendously relevant to the Democratic Party moving forward. The, the two-party system inherently doesn't represent someone like myself. Episode four. And actually, I don't have a title for this episode, but we'll come up with one later based on uh, how the conversation goes. I know our listener listeners depend on us for more content, so I apologize that we slacked off the last three weeks. Um, so we'll, we'll start cranking out content. And I also promise you that we have some really good speakers lined up in the coming weeks that I am psyched about. My schoolwork has gone by the wayside. I am totally... Totally uh, stoked about this podcast and where it's going. It's really picked up legs. I talked to the dean this morning. He's in full support of what we're doing to round out the conversation on campus, and, and I think it's really cool. And in that vein, we have two new guests. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll back up for a second because the whole purpose of this, and we talked about why now in the first episode, the whole purpose of this was to get a voice on campus that doesn't necessarily have to be a conservative lean, although uh, if you've listened to the last three episodes, it probably has felt that way, but to promote discussion and debate around public policy issues and how they affect business. And walking through the hallways, uh, Harold Cove and I have been stopped a couple times by individuals that want to get involved in this and like what we're doing and are interested in being part of the conversation. Two of those gentlemen are in the room with us tonight. Uh, we have Chris D'Angelo and Sebastian McGrainer, and both of them um, have experience in, you know, in, in different ways that can contribute to tonight's conversation, uh, namely around, I guess, respectively, uh, the uh, working in Congress and then also uh, a veteran. And let's give a quick shout out, given it's, what day is it, November 9th? Yeah. November 8th. Uh, Veterans Day is around the corner, so we really wanted to keep this in line with uh, the upcoming holiday and celebrating our vets as we do at the end of every episode. Um, so why don't we start with you, Sebastian, and give a quick background, 20, 30 seconds of what you're all about here. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again for, for having me. Um, again, Sebastian McGraner. I uh, graduated in 2009, was in the, the Marine Corps, served seven years. So I was, you know, four as an artillery officer where I spent uh, uh, one tour over in Afghanistan, Helm Province, came back, and then actually went up to the Bay Area in San Jose to become a recruiter for officers. So I did that for three years before coming to uh, to Fuqua. 
where I'm here with you guys. And you know, definitely glad you guys brought me on and uh, looking forward to contribute where I can. Excellent, and thanks for your service. Chris D'Angelo. Yeah, I mean, I can't follow that. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I Before Fuqua, I worked on Capitol Hill, so I was uh, working on the House of Representatives for the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. I handled a policy portfolio, so I was a legislative staffer working on issues mostly pertaining to the civil service, grant reform, handled some D.C. issues, but a number of others as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, excited for what you guys are doing. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. Absolutely. So I have uh, I've, I've added a little complexity to my job watching the 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 screen go through um, because we're gonna try a soundbite throughout this episode. We're only doing one soundbite today because <laughs> it does add a layer of complexity to this. Um, but <laughs> I'm flying by the seat of my pants over here. Um, so bear with us. I want to get into the first segment. Um, we're gonna sti- we're gonna skip story acknowledgements today because we have two guests that are have very different backgrounds and we want to talk about pertinent issues that are happening or have happened in the last couple of weeks, namely, and we'll start with uh, Trump's tour around Asia. Um, very remarkable. He's what's the stat? He he's there for 13 days and it's the longest trip that he's ever taken overseas, which is kind of funny. Uh, but I think also the longest tour in Asia by a sitting president. Is that right? Yeah, Anyone? I, I think it, I think it's right. Yeah. Um, and so uh, where, I, where I like this conversation to go is talk a little bit about our uh, foreign relations with the Asia-Pac region. Um, he's been calling it the Indo-Pac region. And, and how it's differed from... Uh, from the Obama administration and what that means to uh, a veteran that's in the room and, you know, us as, you know, civilians sitting around the, the table here. Yeah, so I, I think um, it's interesting to note that he has been calling it the, the Indo-Pacific region, and I think that's uh, a trend that's been coming for the last few years, definitely in foreign policy circles. And a lot of that is is um, really to do with other countries in that region starting to be uncomfortable with the dominance of China within what is traditionally Asia Pacific, and adding, you know, in making sure that region encompasses India with 1.3 billion people, Indonesia with 260 million people, you know, the second and fourth largest countries in the world by population, and just making sure that that very interconnected uh, region, and you see that kind of relations with India and Pakistan very much hinge on, you know, China has a, has a big input into those uh, into that relationship. So you're really seeing the interconnection of, of, of those two regions, and I think it's important to take a, a wider viewpoint of that region. I think Trump's done kind of a good job by highlighting something that's been coming and been trending for a few years now. I think uh, also on that, you know, you have top militaries in the world. You have U.S., Russia, China, and followed right behind is India. And with any kind of concern that comes from China, you're having to think of who are you know the major players that are going to be on my side. Just by moving it to Indo-Pak, you're now saying, India, you're involved in this. We are p- bringing you on your s- our side for our team. You know, it, it brings them to the conversation. also sends a message to China. And I think that's one of the things that Trump is trying to do. Yeah, very definitely. And then you, you, you think of India as a, a country that has a um, fairly kind of populist, nationalist uh, governing party as well. That aligns very well with Trump. So you have kind of two, um, two administrations that see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And, and certainly India is a an ally of growing importance in the region, without a doubt. And actually a protector uh, of things coming west, too. Yeah. So let's play this soundbite, because it, it, 
it does really reflect a new tone that's being set in our relationship with uh, South Korea. This is from last night when uh, Trump was addressing uh, the chamber in South Korea on the peninsula. My iPad just... Okay, here we go. The regime has interpreted America's past restraint as weakness. This would be a fatal miscalculation. This is a very different administration than the United States has had in the past. Today, I hope I speak not only for our countries, but for all civilized nations. When I say to the North, do not underestimate us and do not try us. We will defend our common security, our shared prosperity, and our sacred liberty. And then he goes on and on. And, and I think um, it's just a, a stern message he's sending. And it's totally different from what was dubbed in 2009 as Obama's apology to her right after he took office. And I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. I think, well, you know, one of the th first things that I kind of noticed, and we kind of talked about it beforehand, was this was one of the most professional speeches he's given in a while. He went on script. He didn't go name-calling. Uh, but he was very stern, and that's, you know, something I know f as, a, as a veteran we looked for in our leaders was a very a clear direction on where you wanted to go and where eventually his military would go. But at the same time, he's going and throwing in a little bit of a carrot to North Korea by saying, you know, we want to pledge to be a part of something better in the future. So while being stern, he is saying, you know, we will take military action, but we do want to take the best action forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that this is definitely one of the one of the, the best speeches that he's he's given. And I think it clearly speaks to the difference in the audience that he's addressing and his understanding of that. And we were talking about this before the podcast a little bit, that he knows that his core voter base probably isn't listening to foreign policy speeches in Asia. And so he can adapt his, his tone. He can take a speech that's been very well crafted by someone who's obviously very skilled at this um, and stick to it, knowing that he doesn't need to do the things he's good at in terms of kind of kind of rounding up his his base and playing to that that audience um and actually he sounded like a world leader yeah and, and even even beyond the speech though the what was behind it i mean that's a, a day or two after he was playing golf with uh the japanese prime minister uh abe shinzu and he basically pledged to japan that any icbm that's going to go over their sky he will help knock down and I mean, that's a it's a he's over there building relationships that I think um, I don't know if they were deteriorating. I, I don't I, I'm not a foreign policy expert necessarily or by any means, actually. Um, but I'd at least like to acknowledge the fact that he while really being complimentary and commending the South Korean uh, regime, the, the South Korea as a country and how they came out of the Korean War and, you know, sought their own dreams and future as a as a civilized nation. And then, I mean, going, he didn't make it to the DMZ, but um, the propaganda that's 
that's blasted over the airwaves into South Korea from North Korea. I mean, the, the North Korean regime is just incredible. And we talked about it last episode, too, and our uh, encourage everyone to listen to implications of a nuclear Iran and, and North Korea. But the change in tone is dramatic. And But he also, at, I mean, throughout that speech, he was also saying, you know, I welcome conversation, come back to the table, let's make a deal. Um, and then in, I think, a somewhat threatening way, he said, you, North Korea, are not safer by acquiring these weapons. So I, I'm just going to pick up on, on that, and then we should try and include some of the guys in the room yeah, as well. Yeah. But um, I think I think one of the, the real problems is you know, this is great rhetoric, and, and um, it's good saber-rattling, but basically that statement is not true. North Korea is safer. That regime is more secure with nuclear weapons. Um, I'd love to get Sebastian's kind of view of this for as someone who was in the military, but I don't. I, the way we've seen America uh, and, and the West more generally take down authoritarian regimes in the past 20 years, I don't know if there's anything that a regime can do that prevents an American incursion other than being armed with nuclear weapons. So as much as Donald Trump wants to say that and it sounds good and it plays well to the press and it plays well to our allies in the region, I, I genuinely don't believe that's true. I, I think that and I think that certainly Kim Jong-un doesn't believe that's true. He believes that his regime is inherently safer with nuclear weapons. But yeah. if you don't take it literally, and then let Sebastian jump in. Yeah. If you don't take it literally and take it as a threat that we will do something about it, then of course they're not safer, right? I mean, right. I mean, it's it's not that they're safer. I think that's a a word. I, I'm I'm trying to find the right one, but it just deters us and other allies against North Korea because now we have to think about where would they use that nuclear weapon if they did, because. They're not going to use it on their home country. So if we were there invading, they would use it either. Japan um, could be, you know, India could be the U.S., Hawaii, the, if they Guam, can actually South reach Korea. that far. Um, but the thing is, is, and I was talking to Jake about this, everybody, we're scared about what we see about their military, but that's the show of force that he does in every parade. But what does that force look like on a day-to-day -day basis that's not being through the parade? And that's something we have no idea about. Are they going to be like Japan in World War II, where if we had invaded that country, it's going to be an absolute, you know, fight to the to the end, to the death for every single individual, or is going to be one that they can't even fight because they don't have the provisions, logistics, supply. So I'm kind of on your side about there's more power for North Korea by having those weapons. I'm not sure if it's safer, but I do think it deters the U.S. and other uh, entities from coming in. Do you do you see anything else that would deter the U.S.? That's that's kind of the the, the follow-on to that is, is there a stop short of nuclear weapons option for North Korea that achieves the goals of the regime in terms of their security and stability? I think that if you, China, Russia, there's some sort of, for some reason, start to support North Korea or not do anything to stop them, and they just continue to get better and better, and now with one nuclear weapon, it's it's three, it's ten, and now who knows how many, and then that range just keeps growing. And then the rhetoric goes back to what it was before, where it's name-calling. Somebody's just going to get upset because that's eventually what happens when people get upset because they're calling names. Somebody just cracks first. 
So the instability of that individual in that country, that's like the the wild card in the whole thing. Not not to rehash the conversation we had last time. I think a lot of this goes back to what we talked about last time. I, I, I agreed with Cove last time and I would again this time. I think, you know, to follow on to what Sebastian was just saying, I this the status quo is ideal for North Korea right now. We we aren't fully aware of their capabilities. We have to believe that they have some pretty strong capabilities. As long as that's the case, then Kim can be pretty comfortable in his chair. Uh, you know, whether they develop those capabilities or not, something we talked about last time is it, it would be essentially a suicide wish to utilize them. So the status quo is, is exactly where they want to be, where the rest of the world believes that they are somewhat capable and continuing to develop. And as long as they stay in that mode, then he stays in power, which is ultimately all he cares about. So let's move on through Trump's trip because he's on his way to China and now we can have uh, a more uh, business implication conversation, I think, because what China has come out with, and it's not confidential at all. It's the, uh, their 2025 plan to essentially rule the world in every industry possible. Um, and so you, you had some thoughts about that before. Yeah. I think it was just recently I saw the alphabet CEO said they're going to take over you know, the AI race and, and that push to discover this new technology because they're putting so much effort into the education, the research, and they just have the manpower to do it. And we're falling behind on that. And we've seen with what these different, you know, Foxconn and these different companies can create a facility or factory in a day, in two days, where it takes us months to just find out where we're going to build the land. We're at a disadvantage in in getting there where China can actually speed up the process and get there quicker. Yeah, and there's, there's definitely that element to, to the Chinese economy. They've you know, been geared for growth for a long time and there are considerations that don't have to be taken in China that have to be taken into account here. I think one of the things that, that I'd like to, to ask kind of the room about is do we think that the mechanism of public companies in the United States, where quarterly earnings are everything, do you think that dissuades companies from being very research-driven, from investing for that kind of AI type of, of um, technology that probably isn't going to generate a profit in five years, ten years, certainly not by next quarter? What is the what is the implication of the way that the public companies are structured in the U.S. as opposed to in China? where um, long-term innovation is heavily subsidized by the government and heavily supported by industry. So I mean, what, are those, what, are the, what do you guys think of that? I, I mean, I, th I think, as you said, it is exactly right. I mean, we've talked about it in a, in a couple different classes in school. There are a few companies that you can name off the top of your head that have, have one of two things, either a very powerful, uh, influential leader that Wall Street is willing to trust with some of their money, or the ability of a company like Alphabet, or the example we talked about was Disney, where they can kind of cover up some of the losses that they're making in one area of R&D with some of the gains that they're making in another area. Unless you have one of those two things, it, it becomes virtually impossible to put money into R&D when what you're worried about is quarterly earnings. So I, I do think that, that that structure has some amount of, of downfall. And and so if I flipped that question a little bit and said if 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 the U.S. 
were to put together a 2025 plan, granted, you know, we're leading in a lot of these industries and China's catching up in other countries, what would our plan look like? I mean, would it be to change the 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 public company persona, if you will? Uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. I, I think it's always hard being the leader and playing playing defense because the just the the incentive to chase the you know, the goal that you're chasing is is never there. Um, I think that's true of large businesses and, and obviously true of, of kind of macro economies as well. One thing I would say is I think that the U.S. government and, and I'm the last person to really speak up for government intervention, but I think that some of what we're seeing in tax policy, some of what we're seeing in terms of um, getting companies to repatriate funds into the U.S. through lower tax rates is going to be really important to bring that kind of money that can be invested in R&D and le- allow companies to ha- give them the freedom, give them some of their own money back to make some of these um, some of these calls and some of these investments. And, and certainly, I would, I would look to see the U.S. government, through, especially through tax policy, but also through regulation, just make it easier for companies to um, to invest for the long term. And whether that's that goes into, you know, does the does the New York Stock Exchange become a annual or semi-annual reporting structure? Um, the UK did that fairly recently, and um, results are still unclear. But um, I think that could be an interesting interesting way of, look, of looking at things. Also, I think you could even look at the way that R&D expenses are accounted for in GAAP could make an interesting case for assigning assets to that R&D so that you do, they don't seem to be expenses and, and your earnings aren't affected by that kind of long-term investment. I think there are interesting things that the government could do and regulators could do just to incentivize companies. I think the biggest thing would just be give some of them money, you know, make, make sure they're, they're free to bring their money back into the US mm-hmm. to spend here on, on R&D and take less of it in the first place. I think, uh, you know, I was reading in the, the annual report every year, the um, Department of Defense does an annual report on China's military strength and their project. And a lot of it, what it talks about is just this. They're talking about their research into satellite, um, you know, weaponry and, and threats on how to take down, you know, some of our commercial and military satellites. They're looking into better weapons that can counteract ours and a lot of these things these re- this research research is being done on actual you know military grounds which then feeds into the public sector uh, and has different applications later on so looking at that I don't think that the US people would be the American people would be very keen to want a lot of this research being done by the DOD but somehow being governmentally funded has to happen maybe in conjunction. I know education uh, in universities was one of the places where a lot of that government tie-in was back in back in the 50s and 40s, um, but not sure exactly how that would do because I know that's a lot of policy stuff that's way out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, no, I mean it's an it's an interesting question. I I don't know what we do for until 2025. I mean, China seems to have a pretty, and that's why we kind of see them as a not a not a threatening necessarily militarily, but um, you know taking jobs away or taking companies away. But and and we're seeing uh, you mentioned Foxconn coming back to the U.S. There are other big firms. Um, who was the the recent one that just came back to? What's a, I can't remember. I know Boeing just uh, they were going to start uh, build a factory in what was it Mississippi somewhere also. Yeah, but I think 
the thing we learned about that Foxconn, which was uh, you know hailed in Wisconsin, uh, it's huge. They're yep. building they're building LCD f- uh, factory that's not going to create as many jobs as as you'd think because it's a lot of automated stuff. But they're trying to get little headways in into the U.S. and start getting in into you know the U.S. economy. What that leads to, who knows? In any case, uh, interesting conversation, Trump. You know, f- we'll we'll see uh, what the media pundits say in the next couple of days, and he'll have some more speeches coming out, and we'll maybe we'll tackle this one again uh, next week briefly, just to kind of summarize what what how that trip went. Um, but yeah, Sebastian, thanks again for for coming on. We're gonna switch gears and talk a little bit about Clinton because I want to. <laughs> <laughs> and we're inviting we're inviting Chris now to to really participate as well because I'm also very interested in uh, let's summarize the year in Congress. There were two major agenda items that a Republican Congress should have passed through. One was some form of repeal and replace for health care, and that ended up having to be done by in some small form, Trump in his, as an executive order. The second, and we're in the midst of it now, is tax reform. And all of a sudden you get, and I, I'd love to hear, Chris was telling us a little bit before we we started broadcasting, what the dynamic looks like in Congress that has made this so difficult and so frustrating for civilians to watch from the outside. Like, what does that look like internally? Why can't a ruling party in Congress come up with something that people can agree on? Yeah, no, I mean, I, they're, they're fair questions. They're obviously emotional questions right now because I think people are very angry. Uh, the healthcare thing, just to touch on quickly, because it's a really interesting point. I think people forget because Obamacare was um, relatively long ago. Now, if we think about it back in around 2009, 2008, um, but, you know, if we remember the Democrats at that point, they had a supermajority in the Senate, so they could clear the 60-vote the threshold. They had a majority in the House. And even to pass that bill with, with those types of majorities, they made unbelievable concessions to their own party. It's, it's largely why it was such a disaster. It was because, excuse me, because the bill had, wasn't as internally consistent as they would have liked it to be. Uh, and then you had Nancy Pelosi in the 11th hour literally pulling people out of the coat room saying, you know, you're, you're getting on the floor and you're voting for this bill. And so th- I think sometimes we tend to think, OK, we have a majority. It's easy to pass. We can do this. But when, when we look at these massive bills, historically, uh, that hasn't been true. And, and we parties have had, had to fight themselves tooth and nail just to get it through. Um, and so I, I think that kind of leads into into tax reform nicely because we're in some ways maybe seeing similar things with the Republican Party, um, which which makes me very, very sad. Um, but but Jake, when you had asked kind of why is this happening, I, I think that it's really breaks down to internal and external forces. I, th- I think internally we have. Go ahead. Yeah. I have to interject, please, because <laughs> the healthcare that story is more astounding than you are pretty diplomatic and how. But <laughs> that thing got pushed through at the 11th hour, yeah. as you were saying, because Ted Kennedy dies. They're about to lose their majority at the end of w- 2009. It must have been. Yep. And they pushed through what no one even knew mm-hmm. was they didn't know what was in it. No, at they, all. They, no they, one. They didn't. Like it, it, I mean, look at the thickness of that bill. And they, g- okay. Go ahead. You're, you're absolutely right. And then I, c- I could do a whole 
I could do a soapbox. We've been doing soapboxes on here. I could do a soapbox on how that piece of shit bill was <laughs> was pushed through. <laughs> yeah, here. And, 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 and I, I, I yeah, I would love to hear it. I, I think. Um, but okay, internal external forces. Yeah, no, and 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 we come back to healthcare in a couple of weeks' time. So yeah, yeah, we are. yeah. And, and we, I think what what's a shame is we've learned very little from that process. And as you know, I, I'm I'm I am a Republican. I worked you know for Republicans when I was in Congress. Um, we did very little to develop a bill to repeal and replace while we were there. And then w- it was like we didn't believe that we could control both branches of government, the Supreme Court excluded. And all of a sudden we surprised ourselves and we're like, well, we got to get a bill together. How are we going to do this? Um, you know, but yeah, back to back to tax reform. I think on that internal and external piece, we have internally the rise of the Freedom Caucus has been a tremendous force within the Republican Party and the House of Representatives. And, and you know, for your listeners who, who aren't as aware of who they are, that that is the, the far right within the party who felt the previously kind of conservative wing of the party wasn't doing enough. And so they kind of put their, their stake in the ground even farther right. And, and so you have the, the Freedom Caucus and you have the Tuesday group, which is your moderate Republicans who meet every Tuesday. And they are, um, th- they're, they're creating huge fissures within the party. And that is doing uh, detrimental harm to our ability to be cohesive and, and push something through without being on the side of one or another and saying one is right or one is wrong. I think that's just true. So this is, this is an interesting dynamic. I think you're seeing it across the world, not just here in the US with political parties where um, kind of insurgent or more kind of... Um, more extreme views or mm. more kind of fundamentalist views on one side or the other take tries to take control of a party and I think we're seeing it in the Labour Party in the UK. We're certainly seeing it with Democrats here as Absolutely. well. And I mean, we were, we were on our on our schedule of of of, um, of topics for this show. One of the things we we wanted to touch on, I think we probably still will, is is there a future for the two party system in yeah. American politics? Absolutely. Um, and I think this comes to the heart of that is yep. with with only two parties and a range of views that goes across a, a, a kind of a, a vast spectrum can you know can can a, can a, can a Roy Moore be in the same party as a John McCain mm-hmm. you know do, do they even do they have anywhere close to the same ideology where they can both say they belong to the same party and is that party machine and mechanism strong enough to kind of bang heads together when two two people like that have such opposing views on, on, on certain measures and I think that's where maybe the the mechanisms in Congress, and I'd love you to speak to this, is how much power do, does you know does a chief whip have in Congress? You know, how how much power does the party machine have to enforce voting? Mm-hmm. In the UK, it's super strong. And if you if you don't if you're a, a rebel against your party, you're likely not to be standing in your constituency next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, next election. And we saw that with the healthcare bill earlier this year. I mean, we. You know, we passed a bill very similar to that one in 2015, knowing it would never make it to Congress because it was, you know, Obama's president. And then almost an identical bill hits the floor again in February or March. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it had to have been po- politics previously. I mean, it, so the Republican Party unites. We can get this thing through. Obama's the worst. And and that was the, the story coming out back then. And now this year, all of a sudden, it's like, well... Who's the the gal from Maine? Who, who you know? Susan Collins. Yeah. So everyone starts opposing, um, or they want you know pork barreling starts happening, mm-hmm. and you, you want to get stuff for your own state in the in a bill that's not even relevant to whatever you want. And so it, I understand the negotiating that happens beyond the table, but yeah. um, you know answering 
Alex's question. Too. Yeah, and, and look, I, I did it too. I mean, I there were bills that I had no business of trying to get things into, and, and I saw an opportunity I would do it. So, <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm certainly not <laughs> standing here claiming to be innocent. But uh, yeah, Alex, I think that's a great point. And um, as we kind of think about yeah, as we as we just kind of think about the mechanism of con- this was one of the things I loved about John Boehner was he and his leadership team they whipped well and they were able to align the party well. They if a if a vote was going if a yeah if you had a vote going to the floor, y- you knew it was going to get passed. You had very few kind of those types of embarrassments. That was ultimately what many in the Republican Party didn't like about John Boehner, and that has I think really weakened the whip infrastructure. And so w- one of the one of the things that you see Ryan conceding on is is we are going to uh, not try to kind of ram things down our members' throats, and he wants to see. Uh, he wants to see concessions being made. He wants to see uh, coalescence, I guess you could say. Uh, and to his credit, I mean, that's that was the circumstances in which he came to power. So you're seeing the the function of the whip potentially being weakened, um, clearly, given how many high-profile failures we've witnessed now. Um, and, and that is something that is, I, I think, unfortunate. I mean, there's... There's le- there and you have less ability to horse trade because you can't earmark anymore. I know that's that that's not a popular thing to say, but when you come down to it, the inability to earmark has seriously hurt the negotiation process because it it makes your room for agreement much smaller than what it could be. Uh, okay, so now having with all of that background knowledge, let's talk about Clinton. <laughs> and let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about we can talk about the implosion of either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Uh, I am going to focus on the Democrats. Sure. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to pose this to the audience, and and ask what will it take for a the Democrats to really start turning against the Clinton machine? Is it ever going to happen? What what will it take? And, and okay, so I'll preface that as well. I like to call it the trifecta of scandals because it's <laughs> it's obnoxiously. It, so whoever buys the movie rights to this, to where we are currently, this are the Democratic Party this day and age with between the Uranium One deal, the dossier crimes committed, and the email scandal. It is unbelievable to me. And it's so far. So General Dempsey says, "Imagine the what is it? Imagine what is it? Imagine the unthinkable or something." I can't remember. Oh shoot! <laughs> imagine the unimaginable. Yeah, uh, well, that could be <laughs> <laughs> something along those this lines. This is this is the unimaginable, and if if any writer of a movie script could have put something together, they never would have thought it would include all of these issues. So Uranium One, we're selling. 20% of our uranium reserves to Russia, in in effect, right? Um, I have the list of crimes here. We can go through them. I don't really care if we do or not because they've been on the news for, for the last week. The dossier crimes paid $9 million to get this fake dossier published about Trump and then use it for, you know, search warrants and all this stuff to – the email scandal – I don't think emails were ever even touched. I don't think Comey ever even went into the emails because I think he's, uh, I mean, uh, plea the fifth or whatever, you know, whatever you have to do. But 
I could go on and on, and this wasn't meant to be a soapbox, <laughs> a soapbox segment at all. But what will it take? I mean, is is that machine just so strong and powerful that we that she is subject to some other judicial system that we're not? I mean, it. I I'd add kind of an addendum to that question as well. Is is the Clinton machine even relevant to the Democratic Party moving forward? Is it is it is it yesterday's Democratic Party and tomorrow's Democratic Party looks different than that? Well, she won't go away. You've got to. I mean, they've got to get her to go away. I mean, she's not running for anything anymore. It doesn't so. matter. She's still a part of it because she's around. She's on a book. She's on TV all the time. So people associate she can't Democratic she Party with her. <laughs> so as long as she's around. So she's the face of the yeah. Harold said she's a face to. I, I don't know your accent. She's a face to the Democratic Party. <laughs> <and> t- <laughs> what did you say? We'll work on your Creole. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, I, I mean, the, I would say the Clinton machine is, is tremendously relevant to the Democratic Party moving forward, similarly to how the Bush machine is going to be relevant to the Republican Party moving forward. If, if you look at the, the most recent Republican primary, you had <laughs> millions and millions of dollars that was dammed behind the, the, the Bush machine before it gave the say-so, you don't have to back Jeb anymore. You're allowed, this money can flow where it should or needs to or, or however it may go. Um, and I think similarly with the democratic party, there's just, there is such a web of connections and, and money and, and influence wrapped up in the Clinton family. And, and, and Bill Clinton is likable. I mean, his, his clear flaws, notwithstanding Bill Clinton is likable. And that is $500,000 worth for a speech. Like exactly. Really likable. And and people are paying, right? Uh, Hillary Clinton is not likable. Uh, and, and that's, I'm not, I don't mean that as like being cruel to Hillary. I think that those poll numbers came very through, came through very clearly. Um, and, and so you have, as long as I would say, actually, it's not really about Hillary. It's about Bill. And as long as Bill is around and able to exert that influence and to remind everybody he came an inch to settling peace in the Middle East and he, you know, was so successful with X, Y, Z. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is overstated as a Republican. And let's give our, our friends in Congress a lot of credit when they were functioning back in the 90s. But uh, I think as long as he's around, you just the, the Clinton machine is the Democratic Party, whether whether we like it or not. So. So you don't think like. I I await the day. I uh, I would go almost so far as to say she's a flight risk. <laughs> I, mean, like, like I just await the day to see her in her the same orange jumpsuit that she wore on her campaign trail, but this time with her hands behind her back. <laughs> and I okay, so I'm becoming the more controversial on the on the podcast, but I don't care. I am so sick of this. I mean, the, yeah, and, the, and the, the, some of the things she has done is just are downright despicable. I'm sorry, Sebastian. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say question for you jake how do you feel like don't you want her around as a republican because through the midterms because exactly that because as long as she's around around. that's going to hurt the democratic party yeah okay through the midterms and you just want to get rid of her (laughs) (laughs) just get rid of her i I think it does come back to that kind of existential crisis that the political parties that are designed to be such a broad church have in an era where people's views tend to coalesce around specific issues, people vote on one or two issues and not on a kind of a policy agenda. And so not just the polarization, but also kind of the factionalization of politics makes it very hard for parties that are meant to represent an entire nation with such diversity become a a kind of a functioning machine. And, and, And to your point, kind of, where there's money involved and there's always money involved. Mm-hmm. 
and where there's that kind of activist base and there's a machine that gets stuff done it's hard it's it's very hard to break that power and i don't i don't i don't, I don't know what the solution to that is other than maybe like a a, a bush type insurgency where and, and and really in a democracy the the power should rest with the people who have the choice to how to cast their vote so you know, where do we see that with the democratic party who what is the what is the democratic party's donald trump and where does that come where does that come from in order to kind of break that power break that cycle of money and does anyone well, well, can, can people see this coming or you know i think one of the really interesting things about the democratic party is you have you know the the down in brazil piece is published in politico and everyone's up in arms about it and I think like, that is that is hardly the issue for the DNC and the Democratic Party. The issue is that their primary system is inherently unfair. With the, you have these super delegates, and so you you also have just structural unfairness baked into politics at times. I think that's a great example for the Democratic Party. Uh, and so it, it to me, I think that that makes it very difficult for an insurgency for somebody to break the mold within within the Democratic Party because it's fundamentally designed so that you have these superdelegates to safeguard against the Donald Trump, to be honest, and to safeguard against Bernie Sanders, and they did. They, they saved the Democratic Party from a, a, a further rise of Bernie, which what he did was downright incredible, uh, and, he, and his influence is still being felt throughout you know, today and, and will continue to be felt, I think, as well. But, but didn't that influence, it comes back to the money. The influence came from Obama leaving the DNC $24 million in debt, mm-hmm. and Clinton machine coming to their rescue and owning the dnc for the year leading up to the primary and and part of that too was debbie wasserman schultz was such a weak leader uh you she was in a position where she was trying to save face so desperately that she was going to latch herself onto whoever whoever could give her the lifeline to continue a political career that was viable within dc and that lifeline came through the Clintons, and so she did, and just kind of, you know, look the other way, and and here we go. Um, but but yeah, you're absolutely right, Jake. Yeah. All right. So Muma, you've been awfully quiet, and I, <laughs> I didn't. I really didn't mean to steal the show with with this piece of the Clinton. I I could just soapbox about it forever. Um, but being you got to keep me fair and balanced. What's on your mind? I have been quiet. I've been noticeably quiet. Obviously. <laughs> uh, I mean. So I think, you know, I could I could disagree with you on a number of things, and I I don't think I'll I'll use the forum to debate those things. I think we can argue the we'll do a TND semantics of uranium one. I think we could talk about the fact that, you know, I I don't know how entirely unusual it is for a a DNC or an RNC to get behind a candidate. It happened in '92 with Bush. I mean, that's that's not all that uncommon. I'm not sure any of these things are necessarily criminal in in nature uh you know if you we can we can have that conversation another time and i i certainly disagree with you on a number of those points the thing that i would focus on from my perspective is it, it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier with the two-party system it's it inherently fails to represent someone like me i am i am by no means hillary clinton's biggest fan uh i I voted for her in the election despite some obvious faults that I believe that she has because I liked her significantly better than the other candidate. A- at the same time, it you know the, the two-party system inherently doesn't represent someone like myself who grew up in a conservative family, has some conservative views, but 
it doesn't fit in with the Trump mold or with a lot of you know what you what you see in the Republican Party. And so, you know, the the answer to me is of how you combat some of those things is ultimately with a system other than a two party system because you don't see at least I don't see any way that at any point in the near future either of the two main political parties in the United States reflect my views and I think there is a growing population of Americans that that share the views that I have and I'm I'm curious to see where that goes over the next 15 20 years. Kyle, I have a question for you because I'm always interested in this. I've, I've obviously bought into the Republican Party. I'm, I'm disappointed with some things that have happened over in recent history, but with respect to kind of feeling the two-party system doesn't reflect your views and and you're not sure kind of where to go or, or what things may look like, what is the the threshold, I guess, for you of your views needing to be reflected where you would be able to align yourself with a party? Is it is it just a couple issues, 50%? What does that look like? So, I, you know, the interesting thing about that question is I don't know that I necessarily feel the need to align myself to sure. a party. I'm, I'm interested in, and, you know, maybe this comes from my mom ran for state senate in the mid-2000s, late-2000s. And it, my, my parents always talked to me about their distaste for straight-line voters who just vote based on their party. And that, that made sense to me, right? We should be voting for politicians based on who we think they are as people, views that they have on issues that we care about, independent of what what party they are. So, I mean, you know, I was I was John McCain in 2008 in my high school debate. I voted for Romney in 2012, and I voted for Hillary this past year. I can't say that I think Obama did a terrible job, and I can't say that I love Hillary Clinton. I don't think you necessarily need to say any of those things, and I think part of the reason why I want to be a part of this conversation is because I, I don't, I'm not sure that people represent that view enough today. I think people feel the need to identify with a party and then they just get so gung ho about that party that they, you can lose sight about, lose sight of anything that might be in the middle. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, to answer your question, I'm not, I'm not sure what would cause me to uh, permanently affiliate myself with a party. I'm not sure I feel the need to do that. So, so I love everything that you just said. The problem is you are a very knowledgeable and well-informed voter. And I don't foresee that changing. Beca- I mean, of course, it's not changing for you. But it, the general electorate, I don't see it changing. And that's why party line really makes sense. That's what, uh, And so I, everyone's like Gear geared up. Gear, everyone's <laughs> geared up to go into the mic um let's let's run over like five minutes and and like talk this through but i'd really like to dedicate a full segment to the two-party system uh but let's go around the horn go ahead let's see uh, uh as they say on the ne- what la- final last word or something 30 seconds each last word okay so 30 seconds i, I think kyle you, m- you make a very good point that potentially the individual candidate is more important than than, than the party but I think that's also an issue that's going to gridlock legis- the legislature and, and the process of, of getting stuff done when you don't have that level of control over votes and every t- every piece of legislation has to reflect the individual wishes and individual concerns of however many hundred individual people. So I think that's a, that's a problem. I also see there being a real problem in the Republican Party and, and the Democratic Party as well, but I'll focus on the Republican just because of, of what happened yesterday where you get solid kind of, I, I'm a conservative and, and, and 
obviously don't get a vote here in the US, but I've been a conservative back home. And I, 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 I saw good legislation and good, sound, fiscally responsible budgeting thrown by the wayside and put the population vote against that because they disliked some of the social policies of those people and some of what they said. And I see it happening again here in the US. I see people who will vote against the best interests of the US in terms of financially responsible government because people like Roy Moore do not in any way speak for what, how they, they, they think people should be treated. And I think that's, that's going to be a, a real pinch point in the future for the Republican Party and for the Democrats as well. Sebastian? Yeah. Kyle, you're not alone. I mean, I did a Bush, Obama, Romney, uh, Clinton. It had nothing to do with choosing the people because I liked them more, but I just really didn't like Sarah Palin. I just couldn't trust that individual as a second man. Uh, with Not Trump. the Katie Couric interview. What uh, was it? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, you know, and, the, and Trump, I just... Uh, I had no idea what he was going to be. And to me, like the social issues with some of these uh, uh, representatives that are running, like that means a lot to me. I mean, I fiscally, I feel like some way, somehow, we'll be okay. But socially, we could either go one way or another. And that uh, that always comes in my mind. But, you know, when you go and vote and you see a straight-line ticket where it's just like all Democrat or all Republican, I can't stand that because then that leaves somebody to not even know who you voted for to begin with. You don't even know who was the city councilman you voted for during that election because you just voted all Democrat. It could have been the one person that had been taking all your money away or been doing all sorts of scandals. Who knows? So I think somehow, some, some way it needs to be changed a little bit, and I think the little things like that, taking away a straight-line ticket, maybe taking away who's a Democrat and Republican, period, on the voting ballot, so you have to literally know who you're voting for. Um, those are my, just my thoughts. Yeah, I think it's all really interesting thoughts, and, and Kyle loved hearing just your answer to the question. It was really insightful and well thought out, I thought. Um, but there are issues that, that aren't going away. I think there is a, a real place for the two-party system. I, I support it. I think that uh, everything that, that has been said can function well within the two-party system. Um, but, but, yeah, glad to be here tonight. Tried to be as objective as possible despite my strong leanings and hopefully fulfilled that. No, that was awesome. Thank you guys both for coming on. No, really appreciate it. Us. Really would love to have you back. And we're going to continue that two-party system conversation in a later episode. Uh, for now, and definitely in light of it being Veterans Day in three days, um, we end the show by raising a glass to all overseas, uh, uh, our military overseas that are fighting for our right to discuss issues like this on a, on a daily basis, protect our First Amendment right. So... Cheers to you. Thanks, Sebastian, for your service. Chris, for coming on. And we have a really cool lineup for the rest of the term um, starting next week. So uh, stay tuned, and, and we'll the, the listeners depend on us. <laughs> <laughs>